Yeah, Craig, do you want this? I'll give this back to you. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. I'm Brian McCoy. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not met. And uh, we do have an interim pastor for preaching. If you've been here for a while, Dennis Newkirk is our, is our guy, and he's been out these three, first three Sundays of August. He and Marsha had a trip planned back in February when he agreed to come and, and help us and serve us, and so we were, we were expecting him to be gone, and maybe we should have let you know that he would be out for three Sundays in a row, but I think, they're, I think they might be back in town this morning or sometime soon. They, they have gone all the way to like Glacier National Park and that kind of thing. He's got a big pickup truck and an RV, and he pulls that thing all over the place. And so they've had a great time, and, uh, and we love them and looking forward to them being back with us next week. Hey, school is in, right? All the kids said, uh, and all the parents went, amen. School is back in. Did you have a favorite subject in school? I know that we're in this cul-de-sac that's kind of STEM-oriented. None of those were my favorite subject. Um, I did like chemistry, uh, but uh, history was my subject. I loved history, and I enjoyed it a lot. My grandfather lived history. He was thrown into action in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. I remember as a kid, he survived that, by the way, and I remember as a kid going to their house, and, and he had three big bookcases in his home. There wasn't a novel in there. It was all history books, and I, it was like my own little personal history library. I could go down there and grab a book and read it, and he encouraged me to do that often. A lot of people don't like history. They think it's kind of dry and dusty, just dates and names and places and faces, and why should I have to remember all of that, keep track of all of that? It's like answers to memorize for an exam, and then it's gone. It doesn't maybe have a lot of relevancy for us, and we think, well, it's not that big of a deal. Some people are just curious about history. They, they admire people uh, from history, and we think about it that way. But there are lessons to be learned in history. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to one of the history books in the Bible, the book of Acts in the New Testament. And so you'll find Acts, if you're using the, the Bible there in the pew rack, it's on page 909. But if you're not sure where to find Acts, you can always go to the table of contents in the front of a Bible, or you can go right after the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and, and there you'll find it. Acts has got lots of lessons for us to learn. Acts is the story of the first 30 years of Christianity. It's the history, the first 30 years of the church. Acts tells us the story of the gospel unleashed into the world by the Spirit through the witness of God's people. And throughout the book of Acts, all 28 chapters, you, you see the gospel like a tidal wave breaching one obstacle after another. For instance, uh, there's conflict and sin in the church, and it threatens to disrupt the flow of the gospel into the world. There, there's rejection and persecution by people outside of the church. That threatens to disrupt the progress of the gospel into the world. And then there are all these cultural pressures that the gospel faced, almost trying to dilute the gospel, as it were. But the gospel overcame one after the other after the other, and isn't it interesting when you think about it, we face all of those things today, and it's 2019. All of those issues lie before us as a church trying to get the gospel out to people. And so the book of Acts, while it is history, it's very current for us. And there are a lot of lessons for us to learn as we study through it. And we, we plan to do that as a church, Lord willing, we'll see. Um, 
when a lead elder is called, we'll have to submit all of that to that person and we'll, we'll see if it, if it flies or not, right? But our plan is to use it and to walk through Acts through this year and be in sync with it uh, in our Foothills group. So hopefully you'll get into a group as well and be part of that with us. As we walk through these 11 verses this morning in chapter 1, I want you to see this, this big idea that Jesus enables each of us with the power of the Spirit, right, to be his witnesses to people near and far until he returns. That's the big idea that I see in the first 11 verses. There are a lot of big ideas here, but that's the one that we're gonna really focus on as we walk through this, this text. And I wanna kind of break it down into three headings. I don't always give this to you, but there are three headings that I see here. In the first three verses, we see Jesus as the risen king, and then in verses four through 11, we see ourselves, we certainly see the disciples as his empowered witnesses, and then in the last few verses, 9 through 11, we see Jesus as the reigning king. And uh, I, I should put a shout out to Craig Anderson. The songs that we sang this morning, man, I was, my brain was firing because so much of the verbiage is coming right out of, the, out of the text as well. So before we read these first three verses, let's pray together, all right? And we'll dive into the book of Acts. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to study it together. God, we thank you for the presence and the power of your spirit in the life of every believer, certainly in the life of this church. And we ask, Father, this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts ready to obey all that you say to us. God, we submit ourselves to your word. It has authority in our lives. It's your word. You gave it to us. It's true and faithful. And we want to obey it. We want to hear you. And we want to walk in fellowship with you closely as we put this word into practice in our lives. So help us by your spirit, we pray this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. All right? Let's look at first three verses, all right? In this first book, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In these first three verses, we learn that the book of Acts is actually volume two in a two-book set, right? The gospel of Luke was written to a man named Theophilus. It's volume one. The book of Acts is like volume two, and we know that because here it is. Luke says, I'm writing this to you, Theophilus. And so Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and Acts. Often if you go and buy a commentary somewhere, you'll often find those two books put together. It's usually a massive hardbound kind of thing, but Luke and Acts, they, they belong together. Luke wrote them both. And in his gospel, what does it say there in verse one? In his gospel, Luke wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Volume one, volume two, I say, is everything that Jesus continued to do and teach by his spirit through his witnesses into the world. These verses summarize 40 days at the very end here of Jesus' time on earth between his resurrection and his ascension. During those 40 days, it said there in verse three that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, a lot of people love to think about Jesus the teacher and he taught them about the kingdom of God a lot. But Luke says much more about Jesus than just he was a great teacher about the kingdom of God. He says he's the suffering king. It says he presented himself alive after he had suffered. 
Jesus came into the world and lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. He suffered for his subjects as the king. He suffered in our place for our sins so that he could purchase redemption for us, so that he could save us from the curse of sin and death. Jesus is the suffering king, but more than that, he's the risen king, right? Because it says he presented himself to his disciples, giving many proofs of that. Some of your Bibles say many convincing proofs. I would say that if it's a proof, it ought to be convincing, right? So it's many proofs he did this. And, and what did Jesus do? Over those 40 days, he walked with his disciples. He talked with them. He, he ate meals with them. They heard his voice. There were many proofs that Jesus was alive from the dead. This is an important thing, I think, because Christianity is a religion of revelation and not imagination. It's a religion of revelation, not imagination. Luke discloses in his gospel that he's not an eyewitness. He was a researcher. He was an interviewer. He was a gatherer of data, and he looked for all of the details, and he did his best work in presenting the story of Jesus in his gospel so that it would be affirming and confirming to everything that this man Theophilus had been taught. And I believe that he brought that same kind of diligence to his writing of Acts, but we also know as we read through Acts, there are three different passages in the book of Acts that are referred to as the we sections. And Luke, is uh, he's humble. He never comes out and refers to himself in the text of Acts. But you see him in those we sections. He describes himself as being part of that team with that plural pronoun. And so here's Luke describing himself. And so as he writes the gospel of Luke, as he writes Acts, he, he says, I'm not necessarily an eyewitness to everything. But he writes during the times of other eyewitnesses. And so these books in your Bible, you know, they pass the test. How would they have ever passed? How would they have ever stuck if what was in them wasn't true because other people would have been alive to refute everything that was there? They are a historical record of supernatural events. You can depend on your Bible. It is a reliable document. And as you read it, you can trust what God has given to us. And listen, if the Gospels, if the, if the, if the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus, if it's untrue, the Gospels, the book of Acts, they're unreliable. And Christianity falls apart, right? Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is the risen king. Look at verses 4 through 8. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's reminding them of something that he's taught them before. And he goes on. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will it... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The disciples were going to be his empowered witnesses and I believe we are his empowered witnesses today. There's a bit of an overlap from Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. There's a lot of conversation happening about the coming of the Spirit and the kingdom of God and being his witnesses. And all of that conversation stirs up this question in verse 6 from the disciples. Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? There are a lot of commentators that take the disciples to task for even asking that question. I don't think that's really a good tack to take because the disciples were Jewish boys. They'd heard about the kingdom. They grew up 
hearing about the kingdom. They grew up being familiar with certain passages of Scripture in Daniel and Ezekiel and Joel. It was really a reasonable question for them to ask because Jesus is talking about the coming of the Spirit. One of the prime markers that the kingdom was going to come would be the coming of the Spirit. But they'd also walked with Jesus. They'd seen him raise the dead. They watched him heal the sick and give sight to blind eyes and open deaf ears. They saw him and heard him grant forgiveness of sins. They saw all these glimpses of the kingdom breaking into the world through the ministry of Jesus. And then they hear him talk about the spirit. It makes perfect sense to me that they would ask about the kingdom coming. They had an understanding though. They thought that there would be a really clean break. That there was this present age and it was going on and they were living in it. And then the kingdom would come. And so one would be coming before the other. And they didn't expect there to be anything in between. So their world is a little rocked because there is something going on in between. Uh, there is the age to come, the age in which in some senses we still live in. There's an already but not yet sense to the kingdom of God. When Jesus came into the world, he brought the kingdom. He said, right, in his first sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus brought the kingdom into the world and I told you about all those ways that he showed that. But the kingdom isn't fully here yet. It won't fully be here until he returns and he establishes his kingdom forever and ever. Now, how do we know that we live in this time of tension? Well, we all experience it every single day. Because we all have experienced, as believers in Christ, if you are one, you've experienced the forgiveness of your sins. But don't you struggle with temptation? And don't you sin? And isn't there a need for confession in your life? It's an evidence that there's an already and a not yet happening with relationship to the kingdom. We have the forgiveness of sins, but we still struggle with it. How about this, the presence and power of the Spirit in your life and in mine. As a believer in Christ, we have the very Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's a promise of the kingdom. That's a promise of the new covenant. It, he's alive and well in us as believers. But don't you at times grieve the Holy Spirit with your attitude, with the things that you say, the actions that you take? There's an already and a not yet. One day, we're not gonna be, we're not gonna be worried about sin we're not going to be confronted with temptation one day we're not going to grieve the spirit any longer paul said that we're supposed to walk through this world as children of light and yet we know that the world is a dark place we have plenty of examples of that recently the world is a place that's soaked with sin and evil oppression injustice tears death there is an already and a not yet about the kingdom at the same time, we walk through this world as children of the light. And we'll do that until the king comes and wipes every tear from our eyes. And so the disciples are living in the midst of this. And so they ask this question. And Jesus says, guys, that's not your business. This is your business. He, he doesn't correct them as much as he redirects them to what he wants them to really see. They wanted the power of the kingdom. They wanted Jesus to reign. They wanted him to dominate the Romans, drive them out, and establish the borders of their nation, the nation of Israel. They even argued, didn't they? Remember that? They argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They even got their mama involved in one of those times, right? And had her kind of arguing for who was going to sit on the right and who was going to sit on the left. And Jesus is saying to them, men, stop speculating about the future. It's not your business. 
All of those details have been fixed already by the Father's authority. Instead, this is your business. Pay attention to this over here. And he begins to talk to them about it. He's saying to them, my kingdom is represented in my reign in the hearts of all of those who turn from their sin and put their trust in me as their Lord and as their Savior. My kingdom is not limited to one spot on the map geographically, and my kingdom is not limited to one particular people, ethnically speaking. My kingdom is going to spread out over all the earth. It's going to include people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. It's going to get a lot bigger and a lot more spread out than this one spot on the map. That's my kingdom. And when you get the power of the Spirit, you're going to be my witnesses. So you're going to get power. The kingdom is coming. And when the Spirit comes, you're going to receive not political power, but spiritual power. The power to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That the king has come. That he's lived and died for you. That he's risen from the dead. And he will come again. Turn from your sin and trust in him. Verse 8 is really the, the key to the whole book of Acts right? It's the key to it. Their witness is described in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters. It's described in, in Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 11. Chapters 12 to 28, it's described to the ends of the earth. The word witness is used 39 times throughout the book of Acts. What does Jesus mean when he says, you will be my witnesses? You will be my witnesses. Does it mean that Jesus called us, that we belong to him, he saved us, he's sent us out on mission? Does it mean he protects us while we're on mission, that he, he's the one who brings the fruit when we obey him and we are his witnesses? I, I would think that all of those things are true for sure. But I think Jesus means something more than that, really, something deeper than that. You, you will be my witnesses. You are the ones who will give testimony about me to people near and far with the power of the Spirit. You will bear witness to me. You will be the ones who would give testimony about who I am. That's why the big idea for the message is that Jesus enables us with the power of the Spirit to be his witnesses to people near and far until he returns. It's the heartbeat of this text. There's tension in this text, though, I think, and at least there was for me when I think about that crowd of people listening to Jesus, asking him this question, because they've been with Jesus for probably many of them up to three years. So think about this. Put yourself in their shoes. They, they'd walked with him. They'd talked with him. They'd heard him teach. They'd asked him questions. He'd, he'd given them answers. They had a hand a couple of times doing ministry. Remember that? He, he fed the, the 5,000 and he had them breaking the loaves and handing it out. And then he sent them out on not one but two short-term mission trips and they came back and they debriefed what happened when they came back and they were so excited and he was kind of schooling them and teaching them about what happened and what they could expect. They had all of that experience. They had been trained and equipped by the master. But it wasn't enough, according to the text. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit. They needed the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Why is that? Because Jesus is sending them out to people near and far. Hold on to your hats. Jesus' mission was limited. He could only be in one place at one time, right? He was incarnated. He was in a body. He could only get so far. If we believe everything that we can see in the Gospels, Jesus stretched the land of Israel. He went from one end to the other. 
did a lot of walking. But his mission is global. And when he leaves and ascends, the power and presence of the Spirit comes into the lives of his disciples and they will take that mission to the ends of the earth. And so the mission of Jesus is meant to continue through the witnesses to Jesus, through his disciples, and it's meant to go to the ends of the earth. And by sending his presence of the Spirit to them, the gospel will go out. Whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, particularly in a Baptist church, people get a little nervous and they wonder what is, what's he going to say and you know, be, be encouraged. It's not chapter 2 yet. And uh, so we'll get there. But, but sometimes we think about the experience, we think about the emotion, the, the, spirit, the Holy Spirit. We kind of put him in those categories that that's what it is. But, but you know, in verse 8, Jesus really makes it clear that the coming of the Spirit primarily it's for mission. It's, it's meant to drive us, propel us as disciples of Jesus into the world. All of us, fearful at times, immature at times, not always eloquent at times, still struggling with sin, imperfect believers. The Holy Spirit comes into us and propels us on mission with Jesus out to our neighbors and to our friends and to our coworkers and to the ends of the earth. Because all of that was his business, and he owned it, and he trained these disciples, and now he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Spirit, and what was my business is now going to be your business. And I want you to be about my business until I return. And so when the Spirit came in fulfillment of the promise, and we see his coming there in Acts chapter 2, it, it, was, a, it was unique it was a never-to-be-repeated event in the history of the church. Pentecost was a once-for-all deposit of the Spirit into the life of the church. It was the coming of the Spirit that birthed the church in the world. And at the same time, let me say this, at the same time, we ought to experience the filling of the Spirit, the enabling of the Spirit every single day of our lives. Didn't Paul say, be filled with the Spirit there ought to be something about our lives that's marked by the presence and power of the Spirit every day. And his enabling spirit present in us drives the gospel home into the hearts of people that we might think are the hardest ones to reach, who would never be interested. But it's not about us. It's about the presence of Christ in us, the spirit in us, using the words of the gospel and opening people's hearts to that. And so God uses us that way by the enabling presence of his spirit. You know, anytime a, a pastor stands up on a Sunday morning and preaches a message and essentially says, you're a witness to Christ and you should witness and there are non-Christians all around you and you ought to be talking to them about the gospel, there is, there is a sense of resistance that rises up in your heart. I'm not necessarily talking just about you, I'm talking about me too, right? There's some resistance because it's not always easy to share the gospel, there's some resistance in your heart. Don't you think that there was some resistance in their hearts when they thought about what he was really asking them to do? It's a little bit like wrapping a chain around a big rock and trying to drag it to the top of South Mountain. You just can't do it on your own. It's impossible. And when you think of the scope that Jesus gave them here, that when you receive power from the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, well, let's start all the way out there on that last concentric circle, the ends of the earth. That place would have been largely unimaginable to most of the people listening to him speak. They did not have Google Maps. They couldn't look it up. The closest that most of them had ever gotten to the ends of the earth would have been a Roman centurion or a soldier 
that they had seen billet in their neighborhood or on the streets of the city. They didn't know much about the ends of the earth. Maybe they would have known something about the ends of the earth if they had been in the city of Jerusalem during the Pentecost feast and, and, and Jews from all across the world had come in there and some of them weren't speaking their own first language any longer. They were speaking the tongue from another place where they had lived for much of their life. And then they got a little flavor of the ends of the earth there but it would have been almost unimaginable for them to think about going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. It's not so unthinkable for us, right? If I had a show of hands, I won't do that, but I, I would suspect that many of us in the room have got a passport. And I would suspect that many of us in the room have got a few visa stamps in that passport. It's not all that unthinkable that you and I could go to the ends of the earth as a witness for Christ. All you need is a passport, a visa, and the power of the Spirit. And you can go, and you can share Christ with others. Beloved, I, I think we ought to be about that. We ought to be marked by that as a church, that we would be a sending church, that we would send more students uh, for a semester at a time like Sidney Jodon. I, I think Stephanie Nation's going to go. I'm going to say that ahead of time. I think she's going to go sometime in the next year or two uh, out from University of Arizona, maybe spend a semester overseas somewhere working. Isn't it possible that students could do that? Or maybe they don't have to go overseas. Maybe they could go help a church plant somewhere here in the valley or somewhere else in, in, in the United States that needs help and could use a, an energetic student for a semester. It's, it's, it's possible. How about our students and our adults going for 10, 12 days at a time? Either regionally here, as we've done with Salt Lake City, or, or globally, like Indonesia or Malaysia. Many of you have been to those kinds of places, or, or Africa. Let's be ascending church as Jesus asks us to be by the power of his spirit. He challenged their prejudices and their pride, didn't he, when he said, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. Uh, no Jew went through Samaria. They, they did everything in their power to avoid it. They would go a long way around. Jesus dragged his disciples through the heart of that country. In John chapter 4, we read that story. Who are the Samaritans? It's it's hard for us, I think, sometimes to get a grip on, on those people, but, but all of us, we're human beings, right? And we're flawed and we have sin, and so it's really not all that hard because there are certain people in the world that you think of as others, the others. You, you might even say in a conversation with someone, those people. And it's in a little bit of a pejorative sense, those people. They're not like us. And it might have something to do with where they're from or the language they speak or the color of their skin. It might have something to do with their educational uh, background or accomplishments or lack thereof or the kind of work that they do or don't do. It, those are the people that you can't imagine hanging out with, spending any time with. And they may live nearby to you or they may live in a whole other part of the city, the Samaritans. They're the people that you, that you think about avoiding, that you don't want to be around. They're unclean maybe in some way. You're thinking there's no way that, that I could ever go to those people and share the gospel. There's no way. How would I ever have a conversation with those people about the gospel? But Jesus is saying you will be my witnesses. It's not just to that group of people listening to him. We have to rely on the power of the Spirit to take us to people that we might otherwise find ourselves avoiding for one reason or another because he is the spirit of Jesus. Jesus went through Samaria. Shouldn't we follow him there as his disciples? Jesus told them to break out of the city and go to Judea. And he also told them that he would make them their, his witnesses by his spirit in the place where they were right at that time, in the city of Jerusalem. 
that he would give them power to be his witnesses right then and right there. And for you and me, that's the city of Phoenix and we could, we could bring it in closer. That's Ahwatukee, that's our neighborhoods, that's your HOA, that's you know, all the places you frequent, places where you're served by someone. Maybe someone's serving you lunch or dinner or you stop in for breakfast at a place like Biscuits or, or you like to go to Hillside Spot or you, or you spend time in some other establishment and there are people who are waiting on you and serving you and you're having little bits and snippets of conversation. Would it occur to us to say, hey, how can I pray for you? I'm gonna pray for my meal. How can I pray for you today? Couldn't that be an opening, an opportunity where the gospel could come out a little later in that conversation? Yes, it could. We can be his witnesses right here uh, where we live. You know, according to the city of Phoenix, according to the city of Phoenix, there are roughly 81,000 people that live in Ahwatukee. Uh, we kind of defined it with a map. Can I get that map, Ryan? Is it up there? There it is. That's, that's roughly our, our, our area. That's, our, that's the hood, right? That's Ahwatukee. That, that's a, it is kind of funny, isn't it? 81,000 people, roughly, according to the city, living in this, in this area. We need to do some more work with this, right? We're, we're, this is not exact, so don't, uh, like I said, I know I'm talking to a bunch of STEM graduates, right? So don't hold me too closely on the, on, the, on the detail of these numbers, but I think we're pretty close. We add up all of the churches in this area and what we can learn from them and their average attendance we figure that in that 81,000 people that there are roughly 70,000 folks or so that don't go to church anywhere among those 81,000 people. There are a number of churches in that area. We, see, we, can, we can hit a couple with a rock from here almost, right? I mean, there, there, there are churches all around us. But many of our neighbors and friends don't, don't attend church. And, and I'm not just talking about, and it's hard to, to judge this, right? Because we know that there are a large number of people that attend Cornerstone, so they drive out of Ahwatukee. There are a large number of people that attend uh, Sun Valley. They drive out of Ahwatukee. But just think about it. It's at least tens of thousands of people all around us that have very little exposure to the gospel on a regular basis. They're all around us. You know them. I know them. I love them. I've had conversations with some of them. I'm sure you have. Jesus is telling us that we need to continue to press in. We're, we're his witnesses right here in this community. But how do we do that? I want to give you three ways that I think come out of this. And when the power of the Spirit is on us to be witnesses, first we need to know the gospel. We need to know the gospel. We need to know the, the word that saves. We need to be able to tell people that that God created the world and he made it perfect. And he created us and he designed us to live in relationship with him. But sin entered into our lives and we chose to live life according to our own design. And we fell away from God. And then the whole world was broken because of it. Because when sin comes into the world, our lives are broken and ultimately death comes on the heels of sin. But God loved us so much that he was not content to leave us in our sins, separated from him forever. What did he do? He intervened. He sent his only son into the world. Jesus took on human flesh. He humbled himself. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we all deserve to die for our sins. And he rose from the grave three days later. And he invites you to turn away from your sin, to stop trusting in your own self-effort and to put your faith and trust in what he's done, what he's accomplished. You see, either you have a religion of, of human achievement 
or you have a religion of divine accomplishment. That's true for every human being walking the planet. You either have a religion of human achievement or divine accomplishment. People want to ask questions like, do you really believe that that kind person, generous person, that moral person, that really good person, in fact, I think they're really a better person than me. Do you really think that just because they haven't trusted in Christ, that, that this good life that they have, that you think that if they die, they would be separated from God forever? L let me just ask you about that question. The implication of that question is this. It implies that human performance can merit eternal life. Can human performance merit eternal life? The answer is no. Human performance cannot purchase salvation from God. God purchased salvation for us through the blood of his son. There had to be a sacrifice, and he did it. Human performance is the default mode of all of our hearts, but it's not good enough. We want to believe that we can earn salvation. Did you know that salvation has been earned we all want to believe that we can earn it, and it has been earned. It's been earned by the one, by one who has done it for us. We, we all want to believe that the gospel is about our works, and it is. It's about the works of the one who has accomplished salvation in our, in our stead. About the one who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, that there would be one who would come, who would be born of a woman, and he would crush Satan's head. And he would be wounded. Why? To save his people. He's the one who's predicted in Isaiah 53 that would come as a suffering servant, but a Messiah saving his people. He's the one who came and was born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, announced by angels. He's the one who lived his life perfectly, who laid down his life voluntarily, who rose from the dead triumphantly, who ascended into heaven in majesty and will return one day to rule. This is the gospel. It's the good news. Jesus says, I want to send you to your neighbors and to your friends, to your coworkers, to your family, to the ends of the earth. Tell them, tell them that the work has been done. Salvation has been accomplished. Trust in me. The question is, do you know the gospel? Do your neighbors know the gospel? Now, you can memorize the gospel. It doesn't have to be as long as that was, right? But you can know the gospel and you can share it with your neighbors. Do they know it? You need the power of the Spirit to do that. It can't just be ticking off a box. Ask for God's power and his Spirit to help you to learn the gospel and to share it with others. Here's another question. Is the gospel real in your life? And do your neighbors see it? We were singing that song. Well, we weren't singing it. Well, I was singing it. The choir, the very first song that, that they sang this morning, there was a line in there, let the grave be open and let the world look in. I like that. You know, the, the, church needs, the church needs people who write poetry and people who write prose, right? And, and, and poets have interesting ways of saying things. And when he says, let the grave be open and let the world look in, I immediately thought of this spot in the message because I thought, you know what? Our lives are like the open tomb. Let the world look into your life. Let the world see Jesus real in you. Do your neighbors know that you're a believer? Can they see it? in you? Is your life lived out with integrity before a watching world in line with what the gospel teaches? The Spirit will enable you to talk about spiritual things in ways that are warm and personal and people will see it in your life and only the Spirit can do that. Are there sins or distractions keeping you from living the gospel? 
in your life. That's the second way, just living a life that's in line with the gospel. Here's the third way. The Holy Spirit brings passion to our witness, a passion to our witness, really a passion to share Jesus with others. You remember last Sunday, and David Gantenbein was up here, and he walked down from here, and he met Jordan there, and he picked up that little baby in his arms, Maley, and he started talking about her, you know, and all the ladies were going, ooh, and ah, and... It, it was a moment, right? There were moments like that in worship. And, and David was talking about John 13 and about the love of God for his people, the love of Jesus for his disciples and, and how he demonstrated that. And, and he said, you know what? I, I would lay down my life for this little girl. And he choked up a little bit, which David is not given to do very often. Was there anybody in the room who doubted what he was saying for even a moment? Why? Passion is very subjective but it is tangible. And we saw it last Sunday in that demonstration of a young man who's completely in love with his little girl. Are you completely in love with Jesus, your Savior? So much so that you are compelled to go to your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers. Is there a passion in your life for Jesus? And if there is, have your neighbors caught it. Jesus is the reigning king, verses nine to 11. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There, there are not a lot of places in the Bible that describe this event in this kind of detail. This is the ascension of Jesus. This is a description of Jesus ascending into heaven after his resurrection and where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. He has sent the Spirit. The, the coming of the Spirit is linked to the ascension of Christ. If Jesus hadn't left, the Spirit would not have come. But now that the Spirit has come, th this, this picture is, is very much like, I think, Elijah being taken up into heaven and he's passing the mantle on to Elisha to continue that prophetic ministry. And here's Jesus being taken up into heaven and he says, men, be my witnesses. Women, be my witnesses to people near and far. I'm sending the Spirit to you. Go to the nations and do it until I come again. And here are these two men in white robes. Who are they? They remind me of that angel sitting at the tomb on Easter Sunday. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Go and tell his disciples. Here are these two men. Guys, why are you standing looking? Well, I, I think the answer is obvious because this is incredible. That's why I'm standing here. Look, I can't take my eyes off of this. Jesus is being lifted up into heaven. I can't even begin to describe what that must have looked like. I don't know. But these two men are reminding these guys, guys, don't just stand still in one place. You've got business to attend to. Jesus will return just as he went into heaven, they said. He will return visibly, bodily, in glory. And when Christ returns, his kingdom will come in all of its fullness and everything will be made new. And until that day, Jesus enables us by the power of his spirit to be his witnesses to people near and far until he comes again. Let's be faithful to that calling. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. It's true and we believe them and uh, how we need the power of your spirit. Lord, 
bring conviction in our hearts about our lives and how we live them. We wanna live our lives in line with the gospel. We wanna be empowered by your spirit. We want people to see you in us and to know that you are real, that you are risen and you are alive, you are reigning and you are coming and that there is only one way to be set free from sin and it's through faith and trust in you. So Jesus, help us as a church to be that way. Help us as individual believers. Help us as small groups and foothills groups to gather together and to do it together, to be on mission for you in this world. For your glory until you come again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen.